just past 7 o'clock, and here we go on a Monday evening. Hot night in South Florida. Beautiful, though. And it's time for Ira on Sports, True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. And Ira, a lot to get into tonight. Um, we have a great guest coming on, Jerome Weitzman, uh, Fox NBA writer. We've had him on before. And what he, I mean, obviously he writes about all things NBA, but he wrote a book, and it's very topical to what's going on right now in the NBA. It's called Tanking to the Top about the Philadelphia 76ers, and I think the big discussion today is, well, I've been talking about Ben Simmons for a while. I'm going <laughs> to yeah. give myself, pat myself, start patting myself on the back here on this one, And but when I saw the games last week, we saw his play. But it's just it's talking about what happened, what's going to happen with Ben Simmons and how you can have a team that finished first in the Eastern Conference and they have a point guard that doesn't want to have the basketball or hold the basketball <laughs> and you're paying him $150 million. So that's a problem. The, the whole thing is bizarre, and I, I think that this has sealed his fate in Philadelphia. I don't know what they can get for him with the contract, but hopefully we get some uh, more clarification on that. But we'll talk to Jerome Weitzman probably about 35, 40 minutes here on Iron Sports. Iris, right, great to have you back in the studio. You've been really busy lately, though, and I joked with you, I think you attended more NBA playoff games than, like, LeBron James and Jimmy <laughs> Butler combined over the past couple of weeks. Well, this, we're on 95.9, 106.9, so we have oldies music before, and there was a song, What Are You Doing Tonight? And I guess the point <laughs> is, as my friends, when I send pictures out to about my games, when I post on Instagram, someone always says, of course you're at the game. Like, there's no <laughs> doubt that you'll be there. So what you're doing tonight, if there's an NBA playoff game, you're going to be there, because I was able to attend Tuesday night, again, Tuesday night in Brooklyn, Wednesday night in Philly, and then Saturday night, the best basketball game, NBA game I have ever attended, non-finals. So anytime really? I was in the finals with Jordan in the finals or LeBron in the finals, Curry, Durant, you know, those games are better. They're, they're more exciting. In the, but from a non-finals game, and I've been to a bunch of game seven, so, but the point is a non-finals NBA game, by far the best. The enthusiasm, the energy in the arena, Durant, Giannis, everything, the closeness of the game, the magnitude of the game, uh, everything about that made that, I, I just, I think I was holding my breath the entire game. There was a guy and who left like right before Durant hit that shot to send overtime. Why? And people were like, what are you doing? How can you leave that game? It was so, and it was truly one of the, it was, I was, I'm just, I felt so lucky to have been there for that game. It was uh, it was great. Even better to be there in person. You had great seats for all these games. We'll talk more about that um, in a couple of minutes. But let's talk U.S. Open first. Open up with golf. And I was really excited for Sunday. This looked like it was going to be a fantastic day of golf. It ended up being a great win for John Rahm, but maybe not the you know spectacle that we thought was going to happen with all those great names at the top of the leaderboard. I think leaderboard. you had every single top 10 golfer all battling and all within. At one point, there was 15 golfers and 10 were the top 10 in the world, all within a stroke of each other. So and, cool. And suddenly, it just, <laughs> they all disappeared. I was mm -hmm. left with Louis Oslo as a hasn't, and John Rahm uh, battling it out there. But uh, and, and would you want to call a win surprising from a player that was a heavy favorite to win the tournament? Yeah. So going into the tournament, John Rahm was favorite. Now he's number one in the world. But again, people were considering that he had to pull out of Memorial two weeks ago with COVID, uh, that it is a surprise, I guess, to, to many that he was able to pull this off and have it, get his first major, his excitement for winning this. But he'd been trending. I mean, it's his first major, but he'd been winning. He'd been top 10, I think his last 14 tournaments, he's been in the top 10 10 times. Mm -hmm. So, but, and, and he would have won the Memorial, if, except for the COVID, they, they disqualified him for that. But it was... 
Sunday could, Sunday was good. It was a good. It was exciting, but it could have been just you had you had Brooks in there and Rory in there and Bryson in there. Marikawa was and right Marikawa, there. and they all imploded at the like tenth, eleventh, and twelfth holes. It, it was definitely a tough golf course. I mean, they, they wanted to they wanted some bad scores out there, and they got them because you were seeing left and right double bogeys. You know what I mean? Things you just you don't really see that often. Cool. I didn't realize how liked John Rahm is. I mean, social media blew up with. You know, Phil Mickelson, basically every golfer went out and congratulated him. I didn't realize he had that presence and just that following from his peers on the tour. Yeah, I liked what Phil Mickelson did when he was, when there was a chance that was going to go into a playoff, Phil went with John Rahm's wife and their child and was like, brought a chair over, like carried the chair over there so you can watch John, because John was like warming up in case Osas and Eagle put an eagle on on 18, which came a little closer than people thought, but I thought it was definitely, look, he's extremely popular. Uh, as I told you, the story, I've always, whenever John Rahm does something great, I'll say the story was I was at the U.S. Open like four years ago at Oakmont, and I saw him finishing on Friday at nine. I was the only person, and this woman was right there, and I said, who are you watching? He was, I'm watching John, I'm watching John Rahm. He's my boyfriend, and then she just turned me and goes, and he's going to be the number one golfer in the world, yeah. and I just remember that when she like just emphatically said it, and that's his wife now with the mother of his child, and she's 100% correct, because now he's back to being number one. Finally, Justin Johnson is not the number one. He's been number one since he's forever not playing well. But Rom's number one and got his first major. Did you know that he proposed to his wife at Torrey Pines? I uh, did not so, know that. Proposed to her there, won his first major, and had his son, you know, his brand new child there for his first Father's Day. <laughs> kind of all came together there in Southern California for him. Let's talk about how he got here, though, because it was a weird Thursday, Friday, and kind of weird Saturday, too. Guys like Richard Bland had the lead that nobody had ever heard of, and the internet was going crazy about that, too. Well, thir- well first of all, Louis Oshazen, who who was led almost the whole tournament because he had he, he had a four under after the first day. 30 arrow from South Africa was 18th in the world, actually moved up to 12th. He's been the runner-up in four majors. And you would think that that's a crazy number. Only eight golfers have been runner-up in four majors. And the names are Nicholas Palmer, Watson, Norman, Phil, Dustin Johnson. No Tiger on the list. Any <laughs> list always has Tiger, but Tiger's not been the runner-up. And I don't think he ever wants to be the runner-up in all four majors. <laughs> no. And then Russell Henley was four under part. He's 32-year-old from Macon, Georgia. Um, we remember him from 2014 Honda where he won the Honda over Rory in a playoff. So they brought that up. And Rom was two under after that day. And Rory was, Rory finally had that first good day. Like so, so many of these majors, he hasn't won in seven years, but too many of these majors, it seems like the first day Rory's like battling just yeah. to make the cut and then he's not in it. But he he felt confident because he was actually in the hunt until till Sunday. Yeah, until what was it, the 12th hole? Or I think it was 11 he came out and started looking bad from there. So what happened next? It was a long road to get there and it was a lot of ups and downs. And I don't think anyone was picking Rom to win early on. No, well, Blaine, and this, who know Richard Brand, people think it's Richard Brand playing. Richard Brand is 48 years old. He's had played in three majors in 23 years, been on the European tour, won a, tour, won a tournament over there. No one's ever heard of him no. at all. And he ends up leading after the after his Friday in the <laughs> tournament, which is crazy. And then Henley and Oshausen, uh, Rahm is up there at three under, and Bryson, and it, the, the field was great. Bryson, Brooks, and Colin Marcow and Justin Thomas were all even. Uh, but it was, like, it was like one of these tournaments that all the top guys made the cut. You weren't worried about someone's going to make Victor Hovland missed the cut because he got sand in his eye and yeah. withdrawal from the tournament. But, uh, and then Saturday, Mackenzie Hughes, we remember him from the Honda 2020 when he finished number, when he finished second to Sanjay M. He's leading it at five under and, uh, and Louis had five under, Henley's five under, McElroy three under and uh, Bryson. The one thing that helped with 
right? So we're wondering with the crowds coming, how that would affect him in these tournaments. Because remember, he won the U.S. Open last year at, at, at uh, Wingfoot, and there was no fans there. But it benefited because he hit so many balls out, you know, all crazy, like in the rough. But the fans trumped down all the, the, the grass. Mm-hmm. So instead of being in the deep, he is so far in the rough that he's in where the fans are. That there, It wasn't like he was hitting in deep rough. It's actually less rough out where the fans were standing yeah. than right yeah. off, off the fairways. And so he was still in the mix. And, well, even Jordan Spieth shot a 68 and was uh, was one over and letting you know setting up for a Sunday start. They showed a video of Spieth um, on the driving range, the practice range, just mashing his club into the ground, messing up. He was <laughs> there was some frustration uh, from, from Jordan Spieth. Not a, not a good look for the greenskeepers there. Um, so let's talk about Sunday because this, like I said, I thought this was going to be fireworks and it ended up being a, a fun Sunday, but not what I expected. Like Justin Thomas started out like I because I always think Justin Thomas is he just has the perfect game for these tournaments and he started out uh, two bird early birdies um, when the leaders were at five. He got to two under, but then he got had a double bogey. Uh, Rory got to was at four under. Bryson at three under. Kepka at three under. But then. Then, uh, then on 10, Dustin Johnson, had a, he was at two under triple bogey. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, that's the same hole that Justin Thomas had a double bogey. And then Bryson on 8, he almost had a hole in one on, on, after 8. On 9, he, uh, on, I mean on 8, he hit the ball with like an inch of the hole yeah. and that put him for five, 5 under. So now he's at 5 under and everyone else is at 4 under at that point. And uh, even Kepka almost holed out. He went to, to 4 under. Uh, but then Louis, Louis I'm going to say Oshausen again. Oh, say, we're going to say just Louis, okay? <laughs> So then Louie ties uh, Bryson at five under. And uh, then on 11, Bryson. So this is the chance. So Bryson's defending champion. He's talked the game, said everything. There was even a comment. He goes, like, I'm in the mix. And Brooks is, there's all this coming between Brooks and Bryson and everything. So there's a lot of talking about, about Bryson. He said, I was out there practicing on Thursday and Friday in the dark. There were the pictures and all that other stuff. So suddenly now on 11, he has the lead of the tournament. And he had, had a bogey in 30 holes, finally had his first bogey. And at the same time, he bogeyed. Louis birdied the hole and he went to six under. So he had a two stroke lead, which he then fell back on. But then mm-hmm. at the point, it was still Bryson fell off that lead. But for like, I guess, 20 minutes, he had the whole lead of the, of the open. But then the top players started really collapsing. Marikawa on 13, a double bogey. He finished at one under, uh, two under in fourth place, but that double bogey. Bryson, then this is the disaster for Bryson. He bogeys 12, then he lands in a six pack of beer that was on there. <laughs> that was hilarious. That he was right in the beer. And I don't know how much beer was left in there. But the ball was in there, and then he had it on 13 a double bogey, and that left you know. Then and then on 17 he had a quad bogey, so he ended up shooting plus 77. He shot 44 on the back nine, ended up plus three for the tournament, and he goes. Unfortunately, I had a bad break after bad break. I played two little shots next to the green, both weird lies, both trying to get cute. Um, but it was a four straight major in which he finished outside the top 25 since winning. So he's he's not played well in these majors. And then he made this great comment. He goes, I don't even care. People think that. I've changed a lot attitude-wise. It's frustrating the moment when it's happening. But afterwards, for me now, I don't really care as much. I've already I've already won it. So I clearly sure that's not that sure you don't care. <laughs> and then so Rory is still in the mix. He does, he bogeys a and then double bogeys 12, he falls out. So now, and then you're asking, well, what, what about these leaders? What about Russell Henry? So Russell Henry shot a 76, Mackenzie Hughes shot a 77, and Matthew Wolf shot a 74. So so interesting is that Louis, which is like two, he was like two groups ahead, and then 
then there was Rom, who was way ahead, like an almost forty-five minutes ahead. They were they were finishing the tournament. There were golfers still out there. It was it like the, you had leaders that weren't in the mix. Then you had you had a, and then just really two golfers that had their chance. And then uh, I mean, there was even like Harris English finished. He must have finished because I went to dinner and I was watching this at dinner at like around four thirty, and he finished at three under, and that was <laughs> it. And uh, in third place, Kepka finished in fourth place, and then Guido Micolzi from Italy. It was his. Uh, he's, he lost from the Italian tour, finished fourth. He's only 24 years old. His first major he ever attended. So you have all these top golfers, and he finished it there. But Rahm ended up winning it because he's tied with Louis, and he goes, he gets a 25-foot putt on 17, to, and with the emotion, with the tiger, fist pumps, yelling and screaming. And then he goes to 18, has an 18-foot putt to go to a six under. At the same time, Louis bogeys uh, 16, uh, 17 bogey. So that left made him have to do an eagle to win. So, But it was really the two putts on 17 and 18 that made it for Rom will win. Just it was great to see that Rom could win that tour with those two big putts like that. It was over 40 feet of putts. I mean, I think it was 22 and 18 was was the two. That's a lot of putts to make. That's a clutch golfer winning a tournament. So congrats to John Rom. I mean, you, you get after kind of getting a tournament stolen from him, made me happy to see him come back and get a win in his first major. Yeah, I mean, that was it was it was exciting. He has a lot of motion and uh, and it's interesting. I think for the uh, for the for the. Uh, um, Olympics now. Dustin Johnson is, se- is second. He's not. So they, this was set. So Justin Thomas will be in the Olympics. Colin, Alexander Shoffley, and Bryson is in the Olympics. Whereas Brooks finished is an eighth in the world. Like all the, all the world golfers from two to nine are all Americans. Yeah. But Brooks is not going to be in the Olympics. Patrick Reed is not going to be in the Olympics. Uh, so it was just those. That was all set. I think a lot of American golf fans are happy Patrick Reed's not going to be there. <laughs> I don't know. He, he's pretty good at match play too, and they just hate him. Um, you had you know messaged me. We we're talking about this. It's kind of funny that Bryson would be. You know, talking everything that he does about Brooks Koepka and then shoots a plus six on the on Sunday at a major. That, you, you know, I don't want, like, everyone's saying that he's in Brooks Kepka's head. Is it the other way around? Bryson's now deflecting. He's not playing good. Something's not right with him, and I'm kind of happy about that. No, I, I agree. I think it's, like, it, just the talking about that. And you know, Brooks can talk because Brooks still backs it up because he's finished his top two or three almost every single major he enters. And the point is that at the end, and I, I thought it was the comment was that Bryson was made a comment on Saturday. He's like, I'm still in the tournament, and Brooks isn't. And Brooks still almost had a chance to win and mm-hmm. finished, I don't know, five strokes ahead of him. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One uh, funny takeaway from this, Mackenzie Hughes actually has a Toronto Maple Leafs uh, yardage book. So everyone on the internet's joking like, they haven't won anything in 40 years. Why would you have a Maple Leafs uh, you know, in your pocket the entire time? It's Iron Sports, True Oldies Channel, I'm Mike Balsamo, 717. Jerome Weitzman, uh, NBA writer, joins us here in about 20 minutes or so. Let's talk NBA, Ira. Let's go back, because you've been, you've been taking in a lot of games. I'm doing a lot of driving, I'm sure. Well, no, not because I was in New York between Brooklyn and Philly on the train. So it was oh, okay. more, like, train more, more like the train in terms Smart of work. <laughs> yeah, before that. <laughs> so let's go to Brooklyn, uh, back to game five. And this was, it, it's 2-2. And really anyone's series at this point. And Brooklyn went ahead and put their foot down like, we want to win this. Well, it was, the game started and the Bucks took the lead in that game. The Bucks were, were up. I mean, they were 29-15 after, after the first quarter. They were up by 16 at halftime. And then Durant just put on... Probably the, one of the greatest playoff games of all time. He played 48 minutes. He was 16 for 23. And this is not 16 for 23. Where these were all hard shots yeah. with three people <laughs> shooting around. He was uh, 13, 4 of 9 from threes. He, uh, he had 17 boards, uh, 16 assists, three steals, two blocks. He's the first player ever to have a 45, 15, and 10 game. And that's considering Joe Har- um, uh, Harden was 1 for 10, uh, 0 for 8, and Joe Harris was 2 for 11. So the, Harris 
and Harden did nothing. It was Harden came back for this game. There was an issue. I got there early, and they were like, "Is Harden going? Is James Harden going to play? Is he not going to play?" And he was out there warming up, and so you sort of figured he was going to play. But he looked better in warmups than he did the game. During the games, he just like walks up and down the court. Mm-hmm. But he was there for the warmups, and then. But it was like one of those games where they were dominating, and then suddenly uh, the the Bucks came back and and it almost had a chance to to win this game. I mean, there was a point with two with two minutes to go. It was twenty? It was one hundred four, one hundred four, and then Harden had two free throws, and Katie came down with a three, um, just a dagger of a three, one hundred nine, one hundred five, and uh, and Giannis had a chance to tie right underneath the basket. They handed it to him, and he fumbled, and <laughs> that was it. And then the question after the game was, so Giannis, your defensive player of the year, why are you not guarding Durant? Like you have to get on him. And I I do question because they put Middleton on Durant, but mostly it was PJ Tucker, and they're saying if a guy scores forty nine points, like I think just give him a different look. Giannis is taller, and and I thought it would, but they just did not want to tire Giannis out or get him in foul trouble. But Budenholzer, the coach of the Bucks, was just did not want to put Giannis on Durant even after that game, and, and it really the rest of the series. But that was one of the questions. Now now you're going back to to Milwaukee down three two, but it was like. But you saw that Harden, when we found that Harden was coming back, you wondered how, like, what was he going to have? He had nothing. Yeah. <laughs> he was literally had absolutely nothing. So then that gave the Bucks hope in that, wait a second, we know Harden's injured. We know he can't play. Durant had the greatest game of his life, and they just beat us by a couple of points. Was that, um, you mentioned that Game Seven's like the best uh, non- um, non-finals game you ever attended was that the best performance you've ever attended in the playoffs that Durant maybe you saw some Jordan that was better I think I saw LeBron LeBron in the I saw LeBron against in the finals I thought were good but I have to say this about Durant it, and we talked about this I made this prediction I said they would not even get out of the second round before mm-hmm. because I thought there would be injuries everything I said happened they yeah, poor right. defense injuries and those things but I was also more concerned that Kyrie was going to take the shots and not Durant like that was the thing and you saw you see that if Harden does defer to Durant, the Harden realizes that Durant's the person. But I saw Durant, and I still, I argue with this death, everybody. I thought in the, the two championships that they won, Curry and Clay Thompson were playing terrible for Golden State. Mm-hmm. It was Durant in the fourth quarter who went head-to-head with LeBron. Now, I know they won 1-4-1, 4-0, but it was Durant who made those shots. And I, so many key plays, and he had some great finals games. So I'm not taking that away. Like, I expected this to be Durant. This is, but I thought after he tore his Achilles, and everyone said, oh, it'll never be the same. You're never going to see him. And Max Kellerman wrote him off as nothing. I mean, this is the best Durant's ever played yeah. after a torn <laughs> Achilles. So, and he's 32 years old. But it was uh, it was like that game was great. But then, then in game six, that's where uh, Brooklyn McPain Dallas, that game was not that exciting because Brooklyn came down. Milwaukee was focused to win at home. Giannis played at 30 and 17. Middleton. Uh, Middleton is one of the most underrated players maybe in the history of basketball if they win this title because he is the one who takes all the shots yep. at the end of the game. He's the key player. He's the one who has to play defense. I mean, he's like Kawhi Leonard because he shoots and he plays defense and no one gives him credit because they're like, it's Giannis and nobody else. But it's Giannis and Chris Middleton and I wish people would just give him credit. Well, it, it, He had a slow start and it shows when he doesn't play well, they don't win. And when he does, he puts him in a position to win. But we saw in Game Six that Drew Holiday, who was supposed to be the third part of the team in terms of the superstars, he was terrible. He was eight for twenty-one, <laughs> and he just cannot shoot the ball. And two years last year, they had Eric Bledsoe. They got rid of Eric Bledsoe in some New Orleans, brought Holiday in, and thinking to replace that. But Holiday was Holiday. He's like Simmons effect, <laughs> but he, difference. He shoots and misses constantly. He was shooting a <laughs> shot like thirty percent for the series, but not playing well. But it was really middle that game. They just could not. I think they were almost. There was a talk going into Game Six 
that the but the uh, but the Nets should actually not start to not play Durant, yeah, not play hard and and just wait for Game Seven. Yeah, lose on purpose. <laughs> lose here. on Let purpose the... and play in Game Seven. <laughs> the, the, crazier things have happened, Ira. But I was going into Game Six like this is really bad for the Bucks. I couldn't see them winning two games in a row, and I, I didn't want. Giannis have to go down with that, like his legacy continuing to build on the fact that he can't win in, in, in the playoffs, not even make it to the finals if he had lost this one. But here we are going into game seven. You're there. It was 115-111, one of the greatest games. It was Giannis before the game. You could just see he was nervous. I mean, and I'm going to say, like, I was texting. People were laughing at me. I'm like, he was so stressed. And that's why he had – how many people were, you know, have this great MVP and everything? It was two air balls. And his air balls were missing by, like, <laughs> five feet. I mean, they were not even close. And you could just – and they were trying to breast him. Like, Budenholzer was taking him out after just any time because I think he was in shape and, and ready. He was just so stressed. And his – got to give his brother credit. Thomas, who's on the team and who comes in for a few minutes in the game, is just – he was pep talking like you would see at a fighter at a UFC fight, just just holding him and just giving him encouragement. And the other thing that helped him was on his side were his benches. There was like 500 to maybe a thousand Greek fans, and those fans were it was like a hockey like soccer. So they were like screaming mm-hmm. at Giannis like, "Go, Giannis! We love you! We love you!" I could just hear that because I'm sitting on the fifth row, like across from that. I, I was so lucky to get this ticket. It's like <laughs> one of those things where I'm the fifth. I'm surrounded by like when they're going into like who's in the crowd, who's in the crowd, and they're showing people behind me in the crowd like that's pretty cool yeah, okay, like Travis right. Scott was like five rows in front of me there was all these other singers that I don't know who they were around <laughs> me and there were some actors and whatever so it was pretty cool but I love being so close and you could just when, when I was just so I could hear the players even though it got so it was the loudest I've heard the Barclays but when it was quiet you could actually hear the players talk and hear what was going on and, and got a like I really felt I was in that game like I, I it's one of the few games I remember Jordan's last game uh, with a shot game where I had great seats in the, in the Delta Center against the Jazz I felt like I was almost in the game like this one Great game to be but at. I'm never going to forget because it was just so immersed in it because I'm like right there like I could have reached out and touched like Durant and Middleton and, and I'm five rows back I really couldn't I have to fall down a few more rows but <laughs> you're kind of tall that you're was, pretty tall guy <laughs> but it was like it was one of those games that everyone's going to criticize because Steve Nash doesn't play his bench the Nets had no bench points the Bucks only had two guys who played off the bench and Connie had nine points um, and uh, Giannis scored 40 Middleton 23 Lopez 19 but it was like the point that it, that just no bench points, uh, nothing in terms of anybody on the team. And it, it really, it gave boy the point when game f- um, five, when Jeff Green played well, that's the only thing that really kept, but Durant used that end to end the game and started scoring. But it was Jeff Green who kept them in the game. They didn't really use Jeff Green at all off the bench. Landry Schmidt, nothing was happening. And they just played hard in 53 minutes. They played Durant 53 minutes. And at the end of the game, as I said, it was one of the, but it was one of those games where I always thought that the Brooklyn was going to figure out if they kept it close, Brooklyn was, which had almost a lead most of the game by just a few points, that they were going to win it because Holiday couldn't shoot. He was missing. It was five for 23, two for nine from the from the three-point line. And you just felt Durant was going to hit the game-winning shot. Like, it was just, I kept saying, Durant's going to this game-winning shot. Durant's going to game game-winning shot. And then with five minutes to go, it was 96-91. And it just felt like the Brooklyn was going to take control. Holiday finally hit a three. I was like, what happened there? And then Giannis had a huge layup. They made it tight. And then when Harden banked in a three, literally banked in a three on the on the side, uh, you're thinking, what? but then Middleton comes down and makes a three, and then Giannis had a two-point shot to tie, and Holiday drained another three, which was crazy. But uh, uh, but in terms of the one point that they took the lead on that three, and then um, Durant matched, and then Holiday made one out of two on a free throw, which that was a mess. But uh, um, Durant, get, there was a point where 
Durant turned the ball over. Middleton made it to it. So it was 109-105, one minute to go in the game. Durant misses, gets the rebound, but then he makes it. So 109-107. Bucks come down. Middleton makes, misses the shot. They get at the offensive rebound. So, but it doesn't reset the whole time to 24. So it only represents, resets to 14. Mm-hmm. And then there was like, so at that point, then there was like six seconds left on the clock. They inbound the ball to Lopez. All Lopez had to do, they're up two, was actually shoot the ball. If it hits the rim, be like four or five seconds. That could have been the end of the game almost. Mm-hmm. Instead, he passes to Middleton. Because there's a 24 second clock, the moment he passes and not shoots, there, you're, they stop it at six seconds. So that gave Durant a chance to make, and I have a great picture from that. That was a turnaround three, amazing, but his foot was on the line. So it was only a two, descended to overtime. But if you told me at that moment that, that Milwaukee's going to win, I would say impossible because the arena went absolutely nuts. The Milwaukee had just blown the game, blown the lead. Lopez, who went to Stanford, made that stupid pass that made no sense. And you're like, how in the world is Milwaukee going to win this game? And then they, the Nets scored two points on Bruce Brown on a layup. So they're up two. And it's the only two points they scored in overtime. Durant went 0 for 6. And Milwaukee didn't really score well itself. But it was the end. It's just like at the end, it, well, uh, Middleton drives on Harden, who couldn't even play defense. And they end up scoring and, 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 and end up winning the game in overtime. But it was like the 6-2 in overtime because both teams were so exhausted. It, yeah, no, it's crazy how it ended up. Where did, did you happen to speak to any Brooklyn fans and find out where they came from? I mean, like you said, watching it on TV even... It seems like they're involved. That stadium is rocking. Are they old New Jersey Nets fans? Are they people that just hate the Knicks? It's weird that they built such a cult following in such a short time. Well, I think it's it's a call, it's a following because Brooklyn is popular. They have their own team. But I'll say this: I was at game. We're going to talk about game five when I was in Philly. So game five when in Philly was a different feel because the Philly fans have been fans for a million years. Yeah. They've uh, these Brooklyn fans are they're not jet. They weren't they weren't the New Jersey Nets fans. They they were upset that they lost. They were into the game, but then they're going to a party or club or whatever. <laughs> it's like okay, we lost the game. This was not devastating. They're like, not calling into work tomorrow. No, to this cry. is not. This was not the crying. I mean, the Mets fans after losing a, a series. Yeah. To San Diego, feel I think worse than that. But I, oh, one more point is at the end of the game when uh, when I felt the Nets made another huge mistake because they did have like a few seconds left. Durant comes down and down two, and he tries for a three, but they didn't call a timeout. But like, not calling for a timeout, I think they should. They had one left. They could have gave him a chance to rest and maybe get a hit a game winning shot. But it was just to come down where they had shots both back and forth. What a game! Durant was amazing. Uh, just a great series. So exciting. Do you have any issues getting tickets or any antics? You know, because usually there's some kind of snag you hit or, you know, you have to figure something out. Um, no, and this one, all I did was I. the Nets are selling. The one thing, if anyone's going to buy tickets for probably Miami, we're not going into these games, but because there were so few season ticket holders, when people offered, the Nets were selling the tickets on StubHub and on Ticketmaster, and the prices were all different. It's not like they offered at a certain prices. So they're acting like the ticket brokers. So they the prices shot up. Like I was mad at myself because when they clinched, like there were no tickets, and then once they clinched, then the, the tickets went on sale. And uh, uh, and then so you the tickets were available on sale, but then the prices shot up, down, and it's all because the Nets were using this algorithm to set the prices, yeah. and it just, everything was crazy. Because I bought my ticket on StubHub, and it showed up, I had one computer working, and it showed up my Ticketmaster account immediately. So it wasn't like a third-party person was selling it. The Nets were actually acting as the third-party seller. That's weird. Yes, very <laughs> weird. Uh, Sports, True Oldie Channel, Jerome Weitzman join us in about uh, 10 minutes or so here. Let's go out to the West, Ira, and I'm honestly shocked you didn't, you know, hop on a flight and take <laughs> in one of these games. You were doing so many, but... Once the Clippers started running into the injury issues with Kawhi, I was really ready to count them out. But 
Next thing you know, that they're beating up on Utah and moving on. Well, the key thing was in Game Four, they were down 2-0. They won two. They went back to the, the LA, and then in Game Four, Leonard had a great game. He had uh, ended up with thirty some points, and 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 uh, George played well too. So they, they tied it at two two. Now remember, Utah doesn't have uh, Connolly, but at the end of Game Four. They, uh, you, Leonard hurt his knee, and they, the announcers didn't make a big deal about him. Like he looks like he's really limping, mm-hmm. and now he hasn't played in those games. And now you're going, you're going back to Game Five, and you're like, there's no chance. I mean, that line That's is like seven or eight points. There's no chance that that you're going to start Terrence Mann. Now Terrence Mann started in front of Kawhi Leonard, and so Terrence Mann went to Florida State. We had him on our show. Yeah, I was, was at the, the draft two years ago, and he was sitting behind me with with C Y uh, Young, and I as coach at Florida State, and I asked him, hey, would you want to come on our show? So we had him on as well. Had Terrence Van on the show. He was great. We got to get CY back on. We've had him on twice. We've had him on twice. And then, but in game five, so there's no Kawhi. Terrence Van is starting, and the Jazz start out. They made a franchise record 10 three pointers and shot 13 from 18 in the first quarter. Bogdanovich, there's two Bogdanovich. This is Utah. Bogdanovich was shooting six for seven. He was uh, tying an NBA record for the most three pointers in a quarter. He had six three, three pointers. And they kept the, the whole, they were up by 10 at halftime. Uh, looked like they were going to you know, cruise to an easy 3 2 lead and then the Clippers came back Paul George who got, gets criticized by everybody had 37 points 16 boards 5 assists Reggie Jackson 22 points and Marcus Morris 25 and the Jazz just stopped scoring and the, and the Clippers end up stealing game 5 which is like what and what happened I mean that was crazy and then so the point is then you go into game 6 and you're like okay Maybe the Jazz had a bad game, but they were the number one seed. There's no Kawhi Leonard in this game. They're going to call Mike Connolly's going to start. And at that point, and then they, they, I mean, I remember watching this game. So the Jazz go up 72 to 50. Then in the second <laughs> half, I mean, seven, they're up 22 points. It was a total blowout. You're like, what a disaster. Then in the second, third quarter, Mitchell scores a three. They're up now 25 points, 75 50. What happens? The Clippers score 82 to 47 in the second half. They just on, on a run, 17 nothing run, 22 to one. They ended up Clippers went 30 for 42 in the second half, 14 from 19. Terrence Mann, who had only 12 total points, only played like a minute in game yeah. three, ended up scoring 39 points and just scoring threes everywhere, playing great defense. It was like one of those things where the Jazz just couldn't score. And Rudy Gobert, the Defensive Player of the Year, the seven foot two, seven foot three star, he they went so small that he they almost had to take him out of the game. Jazz wouldn't take him out, but he couldn't cover anybody. So the Clippers <laughs> were just draining three all over the place. The Jazz weren't scoring, and uh, it, it's surprising they lost by 12. I mean, the Jazz were up a game, whether 25 in the second half, then they lose by 12. Absolutely crazy how that worked out. I remember, you know, before we did the interview with Terrence Mann, I don't know if we actually asked him this, but we were debating like, should we say, did you not want to get drafted by the Clippers because you're kind of buried on this this stacked roster? And now look at him; he's becoming a household name on on, the, on this stacked roster. Good I mean, for him. 39 points in a game when he had never he had made the statement I had. Never Never scored 30 points in a high school basketball <laughs> game, and he scores 39 in a game six clincher in an NBA uh, play. Reggie Jackson was great. The Jazz uh, said with Quinn Snyder coach, they were 94 and 0 when they were up by 25 points or more. Now they're 94 and 1, but a terrible loss for the Jazz, especially after they they lost last year to the Nuggets. So this is now two years in a row where they've had these bad losses. Now Conley, the question is, they brought Conley back, sort of like with Harden, they brought Conley back and he played poorly. Maybe it was better not to bring him back in this game and to and to keep. Playing, but it was just a bad loss for the Jazz, and now and that set up the Clippers versus the Suns. Yeah, so we have Game One is already in the books with this. Speaking about, uh, you know, Chris Paul out, but I think they're going to want him back ASAP. Despite winning 
but uh, the Suns are going to have a one nothing lead here. Well, Suns are interesting because they didn't play the whole week. Chris Ball has COVID, so he had to sit out that first game. Might have to sit out the second. But the Suns are a perfect team. They have two wings in Bridges, who is a young player, and Crowder, who we saw from the Heat. If Crowder played like, like he's playing now, he, <laughs> he probably would have beat the Lakers. He's draining threes all over the place. They have DeAndre Ayton, who I'm going to give Colin Coward credit for because he says he's a center that wants to be a center, where he actually doesn't want to shoot threes and just gets rebounds and dunks the ball and stuff like that. So, And then they have Booker, who's a shooting guard, a true shooting guard, and a, a good, and, true shooting and guard. Elite, elite. And then Chris Paul, and then they have a great bench. And they use their bench, and they all shoot threes. And uh, they're a fun team to watch. And we had Jeff Bauer from uh, about a year ago. We had Jeff Bauer on our show, the Suns general manager, mm-hmm. who's put together this great team. And uh, they jumped up to a 1-0 lead. I think they're going to win the series. I don't think Kawhi's going to come back. He's not the type of player with an injury that's going to play hurt. He hasn't shown in his career that he's going to do that. And I think that the Clippers win over Utah was just amazing. I just think the Suns will run, I, Suns might win this in five. So have they said what's wrong? I mean, originally they were saying that Kawhi might be an ACL tear, meaning he'd be out for a year plus, but now they've kind of downgraded that? I, I mean, I haven't heard anything about yeah, what his status is. They keep is. everything secretive about yeah. it. But And so the same thing with Paul. So you're watching a series without Chris Paul and with Kawhi Leonard. But the Suns are a fun team. If you haven't watched them play, they're a very fun team. To, so they play hard, they play fast, and Devin Booker is emerging as a superstar and I bet uh, in this league. But we'll see what George and Terrence Mann and those guys. But I just think it's uh, the Suns are a team that people have been talking about. They talked about it, and I said, I don't think they're going to be that good this coming year. And they have proved me wrong, and they are just coming of age right now. Who was it that reached out to Devin Booker and said, like, you should try to get off this team? Like, another, a really good NBA player said that to him, like, a year ago. And now here he is, a game up in the Western Conference Finals. So let's go back to the East. Um so since 2005, this is a great stat, there's been 60 Game 7s in the NBA. Only four times has a, a home team lost by double digits. All four of those were Doc Rivers. That's not a good sign. And that's what we saw happen He's here. He's lost five Game 7s in a row. Yeah, that's it's just cr- <laughs> not good. Um, let's go back to Game 4, though, because you were, like we said, kind of jet-setting back and forth. You weren't at this one, but uh, this was another game where Atlanta just keeps doing what the Suns have been doing and kind of overachieving, but also looking great in the process. Yeah, I mean, this the Sixers were up. This, the Sixers are the king of blowing leads. We talked about, you know, it's interesting. The first part of the playoffs and during the regular season, we saw all these blowouts. And I used to say, well, what's the matter with the NBA? But now you see teams, like, when they get down by 20, it's like, no, they don't. This is it. Like, they're not going to, like, let no. lose by 25. So now they're trying. And that's why I think you're seeing these comebacks that you didn't see before. But the Sixers are up by almost 18 points. But in the third quarter, MB just got uh, – uh, he, he finished – he was shot 4 for 20, had 17 points. I mean, he's just falling over the, all over the place. And uh, uh, it was just this great – you know, it was a great comeback for Atlanta, a great win for them in terms of, of how they were going to play. So that was, that was tremendous. So let's go to uh, game five. Well, that's what I went to. So that so game five. So now the series is uh, uh, so the, the series is is at at this point three two two. So. But the favorite, I think the line was like seven or eight. So Philly was favorite. Crazy. And I went, so I get there and there's a casino and I go to the casino. Well, the funny thing about the tickets, I'll say real fast, is so I bought a ticket on StubHub in like the club section, which is like on the 30th row. So it was a good ticket, but not a great ticket. Like for 350 something like 350 dollars So I paid for that ticket. Well, then the next day, I bought that like on Tuesday, right after the Nets game. So on Wednesday morning, I don't have the ticket. So I call StubHub and I'm like, what's going on? Well, they don't open until 11. So now I'm all nervous. <laughs> so finally at 11, I reach StubHub after 
operator, they say, you have a three hour wait time. And then they say, finally I get an operator after 45 minutes and she says, you've lost your ticket, there's no ticket, it was a fake, there's something matter with the ticket. I'm like, we'll give you a ticket behind the basket, like on the second level. I'm like, no, I paid for a good ticket. <laughs> and by then the prices had shot up and of there course. were no tickets available. So then I said, look, there's one right on like the eighth row where the foul line is, I want that ticket. And I'm like, I'm ready for them to say no. And they go, yeah, we'll give it to you. And that was like <laughs> twice or three times the amount. So I go there and then I, when I went there, I saw the, I went to the casino beforehand. I said, boy, the money line is so great because everyone was, I mean, everyone thought the Sixers were going to win. So everyone's betting Sixers, Sixers, Sixers. And so the casinos are, I said, you know, I'm going to put like $100 on, did you? on the Hawks. I did. And I won like 400, I was like 150. So I, I ended up, I put enough money so I pay for my ticket. So when the Hawks <laughs> end up winning the game, I, I feel I got a free ticket from the game. But that casino is great to have a casino with a sports book and everything brand new right next to the stadium. And then you go in. And then one thing about the game that was funny is that, man, the Sixers fans are so mean because some fans were standing and some were sitting. So you had that same thing where stand, sit, stand, sit. And people were so yelling at each other during the whole game. Like, Classic who's going to stand? Who's going to sit? Who's all this and that? And it was like I, Alan Iverson rang. They bring the Liberty Bell out. Iverson rings the bell. Dr. J's courtside. Meek Mill's courtside. All the Philly celebrities are all there. And then at halftime, it was 62-40. It should have been 80-40. to The Hawks were playing terrible. And Bede had 24 points, 10 rebounds. By the th- and the lead went up to 26 points in the third quarter. Fans started to leave in the middle of the third quarter. People actually left. My whole, playoff half game. my row. Well, the one thing about the Sixer fans, they do, they spend a lot of time eating because they were late to come in. Like, there was a guy <laughs> that didn't come in until about eight minutes to go because he was in eating, and he comes back after the end of the third at halftime. And then with, like, two minutes to go, then he, two minutes later, he just left. He goes, oh, we're leaving. Game's over. So he spent all his time paying for his ticket and eating food. So it was, and then it still was 87-69 at the end of the third. And then with 14 minutes, it's still 14 with seven minutes to go. But suddenly Lou Williams hit a three and John Collins banked this three, this crazy bank that it like hit banked and hit like back and forth, almost like a pinball machine where the ball kept going back and forth. And then they fouled Ben Simmons and he goes to the line and misses two free throws. Shocker. And that was like they first, and then from 423 on, the Sixers didn't score a point until like .01 second where it didn't matter with Curry. So they literally went the last four and a half minutes to go in the game and uh, Trey Young made a shot, Simmons missed a shot, and it was like one of those things where Trey Young was shooting great points and and, and ending up uh, uh, winning it, and Embiid was just terrible. I mean, just it, it was a terrible end of a game, but they just blew the entire game. Uh, Simmons for the game ended 4 for 14 from the line. He missed 10 foul shots, 8 points, 9 assists, um, and it was like, and Trey Young, 39 points, shot 17 and 19 from the foul line, uh, and Embiid and Curry were the only Sixers to score a field goal in the second half. That's crazy. <laughs> and and they outscored them in the 40 to 19 in the shooting 16 for 22 in the fourth quarter. But it was like one of those games where it's like it wasn't a good it wasn't a good game for I'd say three quarters and then it just <laughs> totally was and just totally separated and the, and the Sixers didn't know and I I um, criticized Doc Rivers because Embiid he put his starters out in the middle of the third when you sort of sense that this game could have been a blowout he kept the starters out for a long time they didn't come back it just didn't seem like there was a sense there was no it wasn't called timeouts there was no desperation or whatever and, and just the Hawks took advantage of that and let them back in the game uh, going forward but then after this great game I saw what did it do the Sixers go down and win Atlanta Which, I didn't six. see that coming I thought Atlanta was just going to close it out let's talk uh, briefly about game six yeah I mean it was like the only amazing thing about that game was 
that, uh, uh, how about with two minutes to go, and the score is very close, the lights go out in the game. So that was crazy. <laughs> and uh, uh, But it was it was like, they were, the Sixers were just, they won 104-109, making shots at the end. And uh, it was just, it, it was like one of those things where after they came back and won game six, the Sixers showed in game six, they were just a better team. They were the better team than the Hawks. They go into Atlanta, they win that game. And that's why going back, they were, again, an eight-point favorite in Game Seven, so that's what—that's what the crazy thing. The, the Sixers dominated the minutes of the game, controlled this everything, and they go back in Game Seven last night and played. And I—I would have gone to the game, but it's Father's Day, so I want to spend with my father. So <laughs> I came and I missed Game Seven, but uh, but that was where just a ter- terrible loss for the Sixers. Yeah, it's Iron Sports Troll the channel. We'll have Jerome Whiteson on maybe two, three minutes here. Uh, Going to be a great interview talking all about this 76ers team and how they came together. So let's talk about how they fell apart, Iron Game. Well, the one thing about the Hawks that people have to remember is that I went to Homestead Raceway in March. And after that, I went to, it was one of the first NBA games you go to. There was like a thousand fans at the Heat. Mm -hmm. And the Heat beat the Hawks. And after the game, they fired Lloyd Pierce. I don't think Lloyd Pierce got to go back to Atlanta. I think he was fired in Miami and probably went to South Beach when the game was over. (laughs) So they were for, no one cared about the Hawks. Atlanta was done. And then uh, Deontay Hunter got injured and came back and he's injured. He's not playing. Cam Reddish is injured and not playing two of their starters. So no one really thought the Hawks were anything. But then Nate McMillan was hired as was as interim coach on the bench, and he has turned this team around. This is, I mean, 180. this should be the coach of the year. I mean, really, yeah. of all the Tivero and Monty Williams or Phoenix, this was, and you're seeing how they're playing, and he really just emboldened Trey Young and said, Trey, you're not going to make, we don't, we, we want you to be a leader of this team, and you're going to make great passes, and you're going to score, you're going to be, you're going to be, let's say, like a Steve Nash point guard, you're not going to be a Steph Curry point guard, you're going to be Trey, whatever, those type of things, and what a performance, and this team goes into game seven, and they have hurdles who was bench players starting instead and, and and they just find different players every single game to come up and be a superstar and it was just Herter it, it, have a game that Trey Young started 1 for 14 Herter was 8 for 13 he's from Maryland uh, and then it was like that was just just tremendous and then it was 76-71 at the end of 3 uh, and you're still like what is going on with it like the Sixers are not blowing this game out but you're just waiting for them to, to come and, and do something but the key of the game and I'm saying it's the key of the game because Embiid said it was the key of the game with 3 minutes to go Simmons had it un- there was nobody around him for a dunk and he ended up trying to pass it to Thibault and it was like and Thibault got fouled and only made one shot and they're like Embiid you're standing you're 6 foot 10 yeah. you're standing there's no one around you why would you? like I didn't like it was almost like they were joking around like two kids were like let's joke around and pass the ball not really whatever and that was and MB made a comment he goes where was the turning point he goes well, we had an uncasted dunk and only got one point yeah, so you don't see that very often. People literally throwing their teammates under the bus. No, and and they threw after the game. I mean, uh, Young had a three though, made it ninety three eighty seven. And uh, Tobias Harris was missing shots. And then one of the other key is that Thibault, who in game five made a bad foul, he fouled Herder shooting a three when he fouled Young in game five. That took it to six points. And I did one thing in the game that I thought was weird. At the end of the game, you saw this in the Knicks game. They got to have the people in the front row sit down. There's no reason for these home fans to stand in the front because Young can't get out like they were pushing him mm-hmm. on the court I, I don't understand why the NBA has all these there are so many rules at these games how can they say look at the end of the game we want your fan you cannot have fans standing up behind Trey Young while he's trying to throw the ball whether I was for Orlando or against Philly or whatever you, it's just not fair to have fans standing right there and not like trying to block the ball but you got to give the guy room there's not enough room for him to throw the ball in so we are going to see uh, Atlanta face off against Milwaukee on Wednesday how 
I don't want to say disappointed, but how do you think the NBA is going to feel if they get a Suns-Hawks championship game? Well, I think the NBA is going to be surprised. I mean, this is... Well, these are, it just has to be one of those things. I mean, I think surprising in terms of where you thought you were going to have Brooklyn and Philly, uh, yeah. and now you have Atlanta, Milwaukee, and, and smaller <laughs> markets. Um, I was interested to see, like, the ticket prices for the games. Uh, the Suns are the highest, Atlanta, two, and uh, Milwaukee, three, and the Clippers are fourth. Really? So that was the, where, where, like, the ticket prices would be. But it was, it is definitely surprising. But I, again, I want to go back to all this, like, the Marks Kellermans in the world and everyone. They're like, we need to have dream teams, you need to put all these players together. And all this other stuff. And this is why I like the Heat so much, because I thought the Heat, I go, no, you do not have to have, I mean, Atlanta does not have, first of all, they don't have, Trey Young's not a top five player in the league. No. They have nobody. Who's their second best player? Like, nobody. <laughs> so they're not there. And then Milwaukee has is really good with Giannis and Middleton, but people don't think Middleton, I mean, everyone keeps saying Middleton is not good enough to be a two player. Yeah, he's a bomb. Yeah. yeah. And then you have George and, uh, and, and Kwai, who's hurt. And then you have Booker and Paul, who's, uh, the point is that, no, you don't have to put this, the Nets together. And I don't want to keep hearing, oh, if everyone's healthy, because we know they're not going to be healthy, but I think you need to have a team that other players come in. When someone gets hurt, other people come in. And that's what you see from the Suns, that Cameron Payne comes in to play point guard. When Paul gets hurt, they still end up winning the game. You saw yep. Kawhi went down. Terrence Mann comes in and plays. You're going to have the depth of these teams are important. And putting all your money on three superstars, they're going to get hurt. It's not going to work. Well, that's, you know, you've been saying this the whole time. If they're healthy, if they're healthy. Well, Brooklyn has three guys who are injury prone. So they're probably not going to all be healthy the entire playoff run, and this is what we get. They're they're bounced out, and they're sitting on their couches right now as we see uh, Milwaukee and their guys healthy moving on. Let's go to your own Weitzman here on Iron Sports. This is Iron Sports 95.9, 106.9. We're honored to have your own Weitzman, a Fox Sports writer uh, and also author of the book Tanking to the Top uh, about the Philadelphia 76ers. We had your own on a year and a half ago about his book, but it's still available. It's a phenomenal book if you want to know everything about the 76ers. And your own, this is like postmortem on, on the season the day after uh, the Game 7 loss to Atlanta. And what's the feeling and the mood and everything about Philadelphia right now? Um, <laughs> so I don't even I'm laughing, right? Uh, what do you think? What does it seem like? Uh, it's uh, I would say the sky is falling. And so again, I I don't live in Philadelphia, but I cover them enough, and I I interact with enough Sixers fans, and I could just after the game ended, and I know you're not supposed to base things off of social media interactions, right? But after the game ended last night, I got a bunch of people um, messaging about my book and need a new epilogue and all this other stuff, which I thought was pretty funny. Um, saying I should nickname I should rename the book. Tanking to for two, I was it tanking to a bunch of second round exits, things like that, um, which was pretty good. So yeah, I would say there's a, a bit of a sky is falling ceiling here, and the Ben Simmons stuff, um, you know, the the city and the organization also more even than the city, more telling is that the Sixers as a team seem to have uh, turned on him. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the one thing about when I was at the Brooklyn, I was at Game Seven last week. And when Brooklyn lost for a minute, everybody was depressed. It was one of the greatest games I've seen, and they were upset. But it's like you don't have these long-suffering Brooklyn fans. It's like they'll go out to party or whatever. But when I was at Game 5, when the Sixers lost, when they blew a 26-point lead, that was, it was the end of the world. And you could say because these fans have been living and dying with this team for decades. And I think that's where the pressure, it almost feels like now with the process and everything, the pressure is becoming on the team to, to win right now, and, and, and this loss is magnified. It was uh, yeah. Also, I mean, so the Nets lost. Like they were, they were, they were mashing it right. They were walking wounded. So um, yeah, it was like in Durant. They clearly gave them the all. And against and against a really good team, a, a title contender. The Hawks are not that right. The Sixers are a number one seed. The Hawks are punching above their weight. The Sixers should have won that game. Oh, I won that series, and they did not. And I think fans are just really frustrated by that and the way in which they lost. 
I mean, you're a seven-point favorite in a game seven at home. I guess that's the question. But I get, I go, no, I, I was on your Twitter feed, and you're talking a lot about uh, about Ben Simmons and some information in terms of what could happen. I mean, it clearly, he was a 60% foul shooter the last four, for the four, first four years of the league. And now 35% foul shooting, but it's not just the foul shooting. It's the inability to just even want to touch the ball on offense and just disappearing. And it's just, he on the offensive end, he doesn't even want to run, want to run the fast break in, for fear of getting fouled with the ball. Yeah, for me, so I focus on the foul shooting. Like a three-point shot was always a focus, right? To me, that... um that that's done. Like it, it's irrelevant almost, right? I mean, I guess it'd be there's no, you know, you wish you would hit open corner threes and things like that. But to me, it's the free throw shooting, and it's the willingness to be uh, aggressive in the half court to turn himself into a weapon in the half court, right? And that is part of it that he just has and he's regressed in that area, right? When he came as a rookie, they're clipped. Like he he knew he kind of had things, and there are plenty of guys in the NBA who aren't good shooters who figure out how to be effective in the half court. You know, driving, kicking, cutting screening just moving around and we saw it last night and obviously that um the, when he had the dunk and he passed it out that was the um culmination of him sort of just being i hate using the word i don't want to say scared just shaken something's off right he sort sort of short circuited um joel and b called out that play after so to me that's almost the big focus like the free throws and can you figure out how to make yourself a weapon in the half court when teams aren't guarding you Right. Remember in the Heat series a few years ago, the playoffs, how he dominated and just it seemed like when he once when he was on the fast break, he just take the ball. He was unstoppable. But now, as I said, he just doesn't. I mean, Kenny Smith at halftime of the game, uh, game seven showed that he you know even on a fast break. He just he caught the ball for a second, and just passed it to Embiid at the midcourt, not even wanting to. I mean, that was his job. To, to He's the guard. He should be driving it down and then passing it at the end. Um, where do you think? Where do the Sixers go with Simmons? I mean, it seems like there's no way he can come back. But also, he he's owed 150 million dollars on a four years. It seems like it's almost untradeable. It's like they would have, should have traded him last year. They probably waited a year to trade him. Yeah, uh, I mean, they tried to trade him for Harden, right? Which we all know um, that didn't happen. I would be pretty surprised if he's on the team next season. That's not off any inside information. Just reading the tea leaves and just. At a certain point, you run up against the wall a number of times. You got to make a change. Um, it'll be interesting to see what his value is. Like the rest of the NBA watches the playoffs too. Um, if you're another team in a small market, you might try to do a buy low opportunity, right? Um, the obvious trade that people love floating around is um, CJ McCollum for Ben Simmons type, which it seems like it could be one of those win wins for both teams. Um, but we'll have to see what happens. And then I guess Simmons' failures have sort of overshadowed and also almost uh, obscured, uh, like. I was concerned Embiid after game five, when they lost, I turned to Sixer fans and I said, boy, Embiid at the fourth quarter, just, he just didn't make those shots at the turnover ball. And they're like, oh, you can't blame it on Embiid. He did everything. He's playing on a hurt leg and this thing, but you see the problems he has. He doesn't stay in shape. So he's out of shape at the end of the game, making mistakes. Uh, he, if he's going to be the MV, he's made strides this year, but to be the MVP cornerstone of a championship team, he's going to have to play better. And he's going to have to be able to make those shots in the fourth quarter, just like Kevin Durant was doing in the series against Milwaukee. Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I think he was – well, okay, so the first two games he was great this year. What I'll say about Embiid is nobody is nobody's forced, except Durant really in the last couple of games there, nobody is forced to exert more energy than him. Like he is – if you go down the line of guys who um, who have to be the focal point and carry the load on both ends of the floor, it's really like – Embiid is really almost it um, in terms of he's the anchor of the defense and the offense runs through him. 
Most guys, like, you know, Kawhi Leonard's a great defender. He's not the anchor of their defense. Rudy Gobert is the anchor of their defense. Offense doesn't run through him. It's, it's very rare. So it, I don't know if you could possibly play that style and not get tired at the end. Um, and he did this on the torn meniscus. He had some bad games. Game four, which they blew when he went ice cold from the, in the second half, which, again, that's fine, but he made a lot of bad decisions. Um, you know, was, wasn't getting back on defense, things like that. That can't happen. And yesterday he wasn't great either. But, again, one of the issues is just we see this. It's, it's hard if your best player is a big man in, in the NBA to win cl- close playoff games. Like, if your go-to – I shouldn't say best player. If your go-to score is a big man, right? You need a guy in the playmaker, a perimeter-based playmaker who can kind of create things a lot. Otherwise, it's hard to get the guy the ball. And the Sixers – don't have that because the guy they're paying to be that just in Simmons isn't doing it. And the other person they're playing, Tobias Harris, came up small again in the playoffs and didn't play. I mean, it's some good games, but it just seemed to be like if they're if Simmons is going to shoot and Embiid is a big, you're look, you're looking for Tobias Harris, who they're paying 150 million dollars to to somehow fill that void. And at the end of game, even against Game Seven, he was missing shots and not able in game in Game Five, not able to make some of those key shots at the end of the game, and, and sometimes disappeared. I mean, he was scoring in single digit a couple games. Yeah, I mean, so Tobias, again, Tobias Harris by this point is who he is, right? He's a really good player. He's a he's a really good player. He's a really good guy. He's a good scorer. He does a lot. He's just if you're relying on him to be your like you know alpha for lack of a better term down the stretch, you're gonna you're gonna come up short. And then it gets the point with the coach of Doc Rivers. Uh, everything was you know, Brett Brown was criticized. It seems like on a daily basis they bring Doc Rivers in. They have the yeah. number number one seed in the East. They lost seven home games. But Doc has now has this fourth straight game seven that he's lost, and now questions are saying like what's he's been doing, and, and these things that the questions are coming to his uh, on his uh, coaching. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I don't know if anyone enjoyed that game more than Brett Brown last night, right? <laughs> um, watching that, so, so yeah, I mean the Doc Rivers thing. I don't, I don't know what to make of the. Um, I don't know what to make of Doc Rivers' uh, coaching resume in Game Sevens, right? That confuses me. I don't. I, I have trouble. I, I don't know if I'm not like the X. I don't know if it's the thing, motivation, if it's bad luck. And obviously, you would think if there's a trend there, then if, then clearly something is happening. I don't know what to do with that though. Um, and I, I don't love the way he coaches series, but again, just like you're watching, and they should have beat them. Um, but I just don't know how much to put on him when they're basically coming down a stretch and they're running offense to like Seth Curry is really good, but that's like, and he's played great, but that's just, that's not going to win. That doesn't win you playoff games. What is Embiid's relationship with Rivers? Is it, and what is Harris is really, is this team, it seemed like they were maybe some tuning out Brett Brown a little bit, but now like they made the change to Rivers and it seemed like it was working the regular season, but what is their relationship and how is this, is this a situation where a loss like this could create friction between Embiid and Rivers? They, I mean, I don't think friction between Embiid and Rivers. It seems like the friction is going to be uh, Simmons and everyone else, right? They all threw Simmons under the bus. <laughs> yes, night, yes. Interesting. Um, that was a quick 180 from Doc Rivers, who all year was saying anyone's an idiot who dare question Simmons, right? And then, you know, last night he asked if he could see Ben Simmons being a championship, a point guard on a championship team. And he said, I don't know, which is just like, you could at least lie. You should, you should at least lie in that situation, right? It's like a weird response. Um, so I don't know about that. The players all liked Doc Rivers this year or liked and respected him and thought that he held them accountable and they liked sort of the balance he struck and the new voice and all that. So it's interesting. You know, sometimes we all focus, and I've done this too, we focus on some of the palace intrigue and like to blame people. But it's, it's usually these aren't just simple things, right? It's not like one guy is usually at fault. And these issues that cause playoff losses or things that pop up, like they don't just pop up out of nowhere. They're things that are usually seeds that are planted years earlier that sort of manifest themselves later on. Later on.
Yeah, I mean, I think this, Sebi, we're talking to your own Weitzman uh, at Fox Sports NBA writer and also author of the book Tanking to the Top. You can follow him on Twitter at your own Weitzman, at your own Weitzman. I guess this is a this is a, a crossroads for Philadelphia because the excitement. I was there two five games two five. So much excitement, so much energy. The casinos down there, uh, just everything. People, but hours before the game, packed up an Xfinity Live. It's like the city is ready to embrace the Sixers. And then when they lost that, it's like they were the booing and the this and like they they can't. You know they're tough Philly fans anyway. But it's just, they're they just they're getting burned by this team. And it's I, I just don't. They're like really, this is a very difficult time for them because they're either going to become this beloved team by winning whatever or they're going to really turn their fans against them yeah i mean <laughs> i think the second part happened right it was like it, it's not connected to the problem again it's just they were a heavily favored team they have two superstars and they they they, they blew it they lost to a blue series here to a team they should have beaten and including some major um blown leads right it's about 26 points get lost whatever that was, blown lead in game five. i was track now game four whatever five um it's just like that happens. You just you're gonna you're gonna the fans will lose patience, right? And it's, it's some of the same issues that have been perking up for years now. Um, yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't know. I, again, I think a lot of it. It's good. Ben Simmons is gonna be the fall guy here. I think in terms of from the, from the team perspective, and also in terms of how the fans go about thinking, um, processing. No pun intended. This, <laughs> this loss. Um, I think he's gonna be a fall guy, which I guess. Things for him and work for everyone else, right? Like you can, you can kind of throw in a scapegoat and say, "Okay, we fixed it. We got rid of him." I don't know if that'll be the case. I guess we'll see. Well, I appreciate you coming on. I know it's uh, you're busy in the middle of, of NBA season and uh, the NBA playoffs, so I appreciate you coming on Iron Sports and talking about the Philadelphia 76ers and where the process is at this time. So thanks a lot, Yaron, for coming on Iron Sports. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Great stuff. Love having uh, your own pop in join us. And uh, he's really an interesting guy. Great interview uh, by you as well. So what do you think is going to happen here, Ira? I mean, there's a lot of uh, this can go either way. I think both series now. I'm going to predict the Bucks in five. I think that they're going to, I think that Holiday might not have a good off the offensive, but defensively, you're going to step it up. I think that um, I, I, they're going to, you're going to start to see how Milwaukee played against the Heat, sort of against Atlanta. I think Atlanta's they beyond. And I, I, I think that, I look at the odds and they're like, I think it's almost even money to, to win the finals now. So I think the Bucks will, will beat the Hawks in maybe five. And I think the Suns will beat the Clippers in five. So I think you're going to have a, and then I think that's going to set up interesting NBA finals. But I do think, I just think the Clippers, I think the Clippers are happy for where they they got to where they they never expected this with Kawhi hurt. Now Kawhi comes back, things change. But uh, but I just think the Hawks. I think the Hawks look a lot like the Heat against them, and I think that the Bucks are just gonna. There's gonna be some games where they're gonna win by 25 and 30. And I think honestly, I think the Bucks are gonna be happy the fact that they're not facing Kevin Durant. Like yeah. gonna, there's gonna be some enthusiasm. Like we're we're not gonna have this seven foot guy. I mean Kevin Durant. The, the, he's we talk about him compared to LeBron all the time, but he can dribble better than LeBron, and he just shoots so much better. Yeah. And it's like he can just go and dr- get the ball, and he and he shoots from just a high point that people are not even close to him. And he's so accurate. He's he's one of the greatest, the greatest offensive besides Jordan. He's the best offensive player I've ever seen. He's unguardable, and it's, when he's hitting, he's just there's nothing you can do about it except lose. Unfortunately, <laughs> all right. Let's go over to the NHL, Ira, and we've got a, two good series here. They're both tied up. New York and Tampa Bay. This one, we. We know that the Islanders are gritty, and Barry Trotz should be coach of the year every year. He gets the most out of these guys. He's got them bought into his system. And when you hear people talk about the Islanders grinding things out, the best example possible was last night. Tampa's, Tampa's up or two, Island, nights ago, yeah, two, two, two nights ago. Um, there's, 
eight seconds left, and Tampa Bay is down a goal, gets in a position with basically an open net, and one of their better defenders, Ryan Pulok, slides out of nowhere and blocks his puck with his body to give them the win here. It was just amazing, and these are the kind of things that you don't get night in and night out, night out from other teams, and that the Islanders are just trained, is do it naturally, and that's why the fact that they don't make mistakes makes them hard to beat, and I'm not going to be surprised if they win this series. They're going to face off in about 10 minutes here and see what happens tonight, though. Yeah, I mean, Tampa Bay on that shot where they, the, uh, he, they, the goalie came out was out of position, but just an amazing around-the-back shot uh, by the Tampa Bay. I forget who shot that. I think that, it was Point. Point. It took the, it just, and it looked like it was, it was clearly going to be a goal, and for him to come over and block it was just it, tremendous. And then it, that was what, again, it's just like the Islanders that were in New York and, and being in Brooklyn. It was weird that they were playing the same time, and I'll have to say this. Everyone say, oh, my God, this is so great. Everybody in New York's excited. No one cares about the Islanders. <laughs> I was at bars watching the Nets game. Nobody wanted to have the Islanders game on. People do not understand that the New York Islanders are the Long Island Islanders, yeah. and the city people do not care about the Islanders at all. I'm from Long Island, and it's it's even 60% Ranger fans there, too. There's not a huge following, but their fan base is rabid, and they just, they do stick to Suffolk and Nassau counties. <laughs> they, don't, they don't bother you, don't bother you in the city. Um, the other series is Vegas and Montreal. Nobody thought Montreal would be here. Vegas, everyone expected to be here. And we're tied up at two apiece. And something interesting happened with Vegas. Marc-Andre Fleury, who has won multiple Stanley Cups, they didn't start him in Game 4. He lost 3-2 in overtime in Game 3. They go to Robin Leonard, who's the backup, played on the Islanders actually last year, has an amazing game, wins for him. So we're tied two games apiece here. They're going to play again tomorrow. And... I mean, on paper, Vegas should win, but I'm not going to count Montreal out. You noticed something interesting, though, about watching these games, because Canada doesn't have the same restrictions as we do in America. Well, Montreal, they haven't been in the finals in a while, and the, the Forum is one of the most historic buildings in sports, and they watch it with no fans, and now you're seeing 18,000 at Staples, and 18,000 at Barclays, and 18, all these other. It's weird to go back. I mean, it was one thing we were watching all the sports with no fans, and you sort of got used to that. Not used to it, but you understood. It but now sense. when you see some stadiums, we're not talking about like, like it's almost like watching baseball when you hear those baseball with some of those like Oakland A's have yeah. maybe three thousand in a game and the Dodgers have fifty thousand in a game. It is when you watch Montreal, there's no fans in the game, and then you're going to go to Vegas and there's going to be eighteen thousand at the game. And those seats would be thousands of dollars a piece had they been playing because that city's rabid. They they must be waiting outside the stadium like to, just to just to uh, get some some of that excitement when the players leave. Um, Shift gears, talk a little auto racing. Well, just two good races this this week at the French Grand Prix. Uh, Matthew Verstappen and Lewis Hamilton, the the two best drivers in the world right now, battling it out. Hamilton took the lead in the race, and then there was a you make this decision. It's almost like when you're driving, should I stop for gas or not stop for gas? Uh, Hamilton decided to stay out and only pit one time. Verstappen said, "I'm going to get better tires," and he goes and he pit to he pitted twice, so he got better tires. And Hamilton had this lead because it takes time to pit and everything like that. But the tires really mattered, and with a one lap to go in the race, he passed Hamilton and took the lead. It was like one of those things. I'm watching on the plane, which is pretty cool. You know, I'm flying on the plane watching the race, and that was good. And then in NASCAR, uh, Kyle Larson has now won four races in a row. He led 264 to 300 laps in Nashville. It's his third consecutive uh, points race, fourth race overall. And in between his $1 million victory, he also ran dirt races in Ohio worth $6,000. <laughs> I mean, this is like Kevin Durant in the middle of the playoffs, like playing a, a three-on-three basketball game for a 
few hundred dollars. It's, it's amazing that he he does this. And Hendrick says his own team owner goes no other racing at all during the playoffs when they hit the, the NASCAR playoffs. But he loves to race and whatever. So Larson is becoming. I mean, this is he's taking over NASCAR, and he's a young driver who was suspended last year uh, for a racial slur that he said during an E Games. But he's back this year with Hendrick and uh, and showing why everyone thought he was one of going to be one of the best drivers ever. It, it, not ever, but certainly he's one of the best young drivers, and now he's proving it, now winning four races in a row on both the uh, ovals and on uh, road courses, so he can he runs everything. So, Ira, what's your uh, plans for this week? I don't know. Well, got it. This is going to be tough, because my birthday's on Monday, and I want to go, I think I decided I want to go to Atlanta for a game, so the question is, do I want to go Tuesday to the game or Sunday? It's going to be in Atlanta, so either go Sunday or Tuesday, and I could possibly, if there's a game seven, go to Tampa on Friday that would be for, awesome. the, for, the, uh, for the Tampa Islanders game, so that might be cool to go to Tampa for a game, but it, it would have to be Atlanta because it's an easy flight. It's only an hour and a half to go. And I've never been to the, I don't know what they're calling their new stadium. I was at the Omni when it used to be yeah. Omni. So it's one of those stadiums I like to talk to. And thinking that Milwaukee would go to the finals and Phoenix. So I'll go maybe catch a game in Milwaukee and catch a game in Phoenix so I can knock off three other stadiums I haven't. I've been to 24 stadiums. So there's only, it's weird that three of the two stadiums I haven't been to are in the final four. It worked out perfectly. And that hockey game, that fan base in Tampa is rabid. I think you would have a lot of fun if you could slide over there and make that game. The arena looks great, too, so I, I think that would be one. If you could get that in, you should. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely a Game 7 in a hockey, Game 7 in basketball. It's always exciting when you have a series and you see how these series go, and that's what, what I love about this time of the year is that the, the series do, it's almost like a movie, and you're watching it and seeing how it develops. We are out of time. Thank you so much to Jerome Weitzman of Fox NBA uh, to join us here. On behalf of Ira, I'm Mike. Let's talk next Monday night. It's Ira on Sports.